Welcome to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast. Before we start, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. Retay Shotguns, put 20% more pellets in the kill zone. Put the work back in your horse with Retay. Yeti, built for the wild. The cross boots, go the extra mile. Sitka, gear built to last. Prime bows, stability built in. G5 broadheads, built American tough and designed to hunt. Killing stick arrows, dependable and accurate. Stand releases, quality and excellent in your hand. I'd like to give a shout out to my close friend, Brent Nadu, who wrote the music to our podcast. Well, folks, we're excited this week to have an icon in the industry and advertising hunting Dan Brothers around from St. Louis, Missouri. Dan's been in the industry for a long time. He's seen a lot of changes and things come and go. And Dan, welcome to our podcast and we sure appreciate your time, my friend. Well, thank you for having me. I'm I'm looking forward to it. You know, uh, thank goodness for uh, our our mutual friend Dan Young and Facebook. We've kind of gotten acquainted here, and uh, I'm excited about talking to you about about waterfowling and everything else. Yeah, we always talk about social media. You know, the, usually a lot of times the cons of it, but you know what? There is some pros to it, and it's we've met a lot. I've made a lot of friendships with people. You know, the internet and you know through the business it helps and. You know, you're right. Dan has been a, a good friend for a few years and with Diane and I both. And, you know, and when he asked us to help with his podcast and everything, it was an honor to me to to be part of that group. And, yeah, he was the one who said, you know, you, you got to get with this Dan Brothers, man. He's this guy's got a great history and he's done a lot of stuff. And I'm all about that and all about uh, making new friendships. So if you would, uh, I'd like to start off and just kind of tell the folks a little bit about yourself and who you are and, and what you've done. Well, you know, uh, I, I like to tell people how, you know, they wonder how I made the money to do what I do. And I, I was a journalism major and I thought I wanted to be a newspaper reporter and found out that pays about $9,000 a year. <laughs> so I, I've stepped down into the advertising business and was an account executive for a long time and eventually over a, a long time started my own business. And, you know, with that, I, I was working for local clients a lot and um, being a lifelong outdoors person. I mean, I, I grew up, I got pictures of me at seven, eight years old, sitting on the back of a flat top Evan or, you know, pull start outboard motor, running it up and down Lake Tanacomo. So <laughs> I've been doing it for a long time and it became part of my life. Well, one thing led to another and I started calling on. Uh, outdoor companies and I, I was lucky to land uh, the advertising business for companies like Nightingale Game Calls and for uh, Mossio Camouflage, Winchester Ammunition and it was it was just a delight. Unfortunately those companies as you probably know George don't spend a lot of money so you're you're not making much working for them. They're all pretty tight. A lot of them really don't see the the benefits of advertising marketing promotion. Uh, like other companies, like a pet milk or somebody does. So one thing led to another, and I was doing some work for Anheuser-Busch, my, my real big break, um, lo little local beer company we had here. And uh, lo and behold, uh, they, they had someone write them a letter. They had bought an ad in an outdoor magazine, and, and it was not correct. It was not technically correct. So uh, someone wrote them a letter and saying, you don't know anything about hunting and fishing. How can you uh, promote to people that hunt and fish? I think if I recall, they had John Riggins, a football player, would have shot yeah. down in a trout vest. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. So eventually, after a lot of hardcore selling and everything, I ended up being the go-to guy for anything that had to do with hunting and fishing for both the Bush brand and for Budweiser. Uh, the other brands, Michelob and the like, didn't take it up, but... Uh, we did everything. We started out, the very first thing we did was welcome hunter signs. It grew up all over every liquor store and supermarket, especially in rural areas all across the country. It gave the wholesalers some way. There was 950 independent beer wholesalers. gave them an opportunity to market to people that like to go outdoors. So that grew and grew and grew, and we started a program called the Budweiser Outdoors Program. And they would come up with $500,000 every year. The National Fish and Wildlife Foundation matched that money, and we uh, signified through a, 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 a contest the Budweiser Outdoorsman of the Year. And that guy got almost a million dollars to be able to dedicate and donate to his own personal charity. 
which was depending upon from what part of the country people came from that won this award, uh, you could almost see what they would do from Rocky Mountain Oak Foundation to Ducks Unlimited to National Wild Turkey Federation and the like. So that program grew and grew and grew until a point where Anheuser Bush was sold to a Brazilian company, and they could care less about you know folks that go outdoors and pursue what we pursue. So anyway, that's my career. I sold a business, and whereas I used to hunt two, three days a week sometimes because I had a great crew to run my company, now I can go every day if I want. And uh, there, there you have it. There's my background. Awesome. So were you a you know waterfowler or just a deer hunter? Did you upland hunter, or was you a guy well, that uh, did all? Yeah. Well, you know what? I uh, I was so blessed, but I. I when I grew up, I grew up near Poplar Bluff, Missouri, and we duck hunted. And I, I tell people this all the time, how things have reversed. I started out about eight years old. I'm 70, going to be 79 now. So that was many seasons ago. And uh, in those days, we hunted out of a 14-foot John boat with a 9.9. Well, it was a 10 horse then, I think. And we, the young guys would slide it out of the back of the pickup and bolt the outboard on it. And if we were lucky, we'd get to drive, and we would drive the old fellas to, to the blind. And they had these great big wooden blinds that were as comfortable as anything in the world. As I look back on them, the boat would slip underneath the blind. <laughs> and we'd hunt back in, in these lily pad fields, these pockets of real shallow water on Lake Wapapello. And it was it was great. It was mallard hunting mainly. And, uh, boy, it was, it was in pockets of trees, maybe a, a, a 30 or 40-acre hole back in off of the lake and these mallards would come over the top of these trees and drop down in there and i can still see it like it was yesterday even though it was 60 some years ago and i think it was funny because the old men they taught us everything they taught us how to shoot how to call and uh, just everything about duck hunting talk about the behavior of the ducks and why they migrated taught us taught us everything in return we did all the work and today, here in 2023, there are no young men to help this old man out, unfortunately. Well, the way I look at it, Dan, they just didn't get to know you. So um, you did a lot of waterfowling starting out. Can you, uh, I know through our conversation before the podcast, you kind of, we were talking and you said that, uh, you know, the 60 years of hunting the ducks and being in waterfowl, the changes and how it's evolved. Can you elaborate more on that? Well, yeah, George, you know, getting in the industry the way I did and going to the SHOT Show every year because of Budweiser mainly and the other clients I had, I got invited to hunt all over the United States. I think I've hunted, the waterfowl hunted in 32 states, and I've hunted in all the flyways. So I really got to see the diversity, the way that they hunt in California versus the way we hunt here in the Mississippi flyway versus the way that they hunt in Vermont, like my buddy was telling me about uh, it, it is so dramatically different. But here, um, you know, I've, I've seen this evolution where I could find water holes and potholes about anywhere when I was young and didn't have any money and go set up and throw out a, a dozen spread and, and, and shoot some birds. And uh, you can't do that anymore. Uh, you know, all the backwater pockets, the places that the highway department's built and the like where you see water and you go, oh, boy, that looks ducky. They just don't go there anymore, at least in this part of the country. They do not. Uh, I go to Kansas every year, and in Kansas we hunt ponds, and the ducks, I think it's, it looks more like the breeding area up there. The ducks sit on the ponds, and uh, you let them sit for a week, and you go hunt them, and you have a wonderful hunt. Around here, it's all clubs. It's the sport of kings, the, 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 uh, the private duck clubs and private family farms have taken over. And I personally believe one of the things that has reduced the amount of harvest that we have here now, uh, they say there are more duck clubs in St. Charles County, um, which is just east of the Mississippi River and right at the confluence of, of the Illinois, the Mississippi, and the Missouri. Uh, they say there's more private land duck clubs there than anywhere else in the United States. Well, between all the corn that they have that they've now learned to roost in at night and um, feed at night, and then go back to the moist soil management uh, type refuge during the day, it's hard to kill a duck. And it, it's just evolved from where it was really pretty easy when I was a young man. Um, I even, uh, you won't believe this. Nobody believes it really, I don't think. But my dad said, you're going to go to college. And I said, why? Oh, I was interested. It was 
duck hunting and some deer hunting. And he said, well, because nobody in our family has ever gone to college. So a buddy and I took off and visited schools within a day's drive of Poplar Bluff and ended up at Arkansas State in Jonesboro. And the reason that we went there, it's because that's where the ducks were. So we, we carried our <laughs> I like that. We, we carried our guns in our cars and you could you could get out of class and you could drive out of Jonesboro, go either direction. And, you, you know, back in those days, there wasn't as many uh, electric wells and they had these reservoirs that they would pump up very deep, 8, 10, 12 feet deep. They would dig a trench to make a, a, a levee around a, a wooded area and to be all snaggy and everything else. Well, that's where the ducks were. And you never had to ask permission. There were no signs, no hunting. The farmers down there that were establishing rice at the time could care less about a duck. So, you know, we would shoot them every day. And we had people we could give them to at school that loved to have them. And it was just a, a, a wonderful experience. And to think of what it looks like down there today, it's like my St. Charles County. It's all commercial. It's all don't you dare step off the road and shoot at a, at a duck or going to get uh, arrested for being on private property. So I've seen that evolution. But between... What, what they've done in St. Charles County and what we've done to the ducks, it, it's fascinating. If you look at the statistics, which I still get some from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the number of duck hunters is down, but the pressure is way up. And, you know, when, when I, like when we first started going to Canada in the 60s and the 70s, we laid in the mud on a, a, a raincoat, an army half-shell half raincoat, and shot ducks with two and three-quarter-inch lead. And nowadays, if you don't have, if you're not like the flat bills, as I call them, and you don't have a, a, an acrylic call and you don't have a Sitka gear and you don't have a mud motor and you don't have all those other things that go with it, you're not much of a duck hunter, if you know what I'm saying. Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I started out wearing Carhartts, you know, and, and yeah. uh, you know, and, and would you say, I got a good friend who lives down there, Chuck Stock. I don't know if you know him, you hunted with him, he owns a ceiling and a drywall company, but he hunts there and he lives there and, and uh, I hear him all the time. He belongs to the club and, and the name Purdy, the Purdy Farms, I've heard that yeah. name, you know, go on. Yeah. And it's Steve Kitchen, another good friend of mine, guides. Oh yeah, him. I know Steve. Yeah, guides down there. And But Chuck was telling me it was last year. You know, it got it gets so stale, and he says, you know, those ducks, it's almost like a, a, a clock. They, they would sit there, and you'd sit all day, and as soon as shooting hours were done, here they come pouring in. And I said, dude, it's because of pressure. You, you guys have conditioned them. Yes. And I, you know, maybe listen to you talk, but I kind of felt this myself. Um, and I, you know, I was part of that, of being an outfitter and guide years ago when I was a younger man, but there wasn't. There was a couple, you know, there'd be a few prestigious clubs that did the the outfitting and stuff, but you didn't. Now today, you got every young kid who can run a call and and uh, like you said, where's the sick gun? Where has an acrylic call? Is is you know is an outfitter? And these guys are putting so much pressure on birds. And uh, I think, like you said, you know the, the numbers are down, but the pressure's way up. And I just wonder if it's the number of outfitters is causing. I know in New York. When we first went there and they could, you know, at the end of September there, they were shooting 15 a day. And I went there and, and I thought, man, this is crazy because I was at the end of September and I, man, we were, I know we weren't shooting local geese. We were shooting flight birds that were coming in and we were ripping them. And the guys out there, you know, they started taking the photos on social media in piles of 75, 80 birds. And I said, guys, if you're smart, you wouldn't be posting pictures. Well, sure enough, the next thing that they, they started complaining is that people from out of state, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and everybody coming in, uh, leasing fields and, and becoming outfitters. Oh, absolutely. That's what ran me out of Canada. You know, we used to be able to go up there and just knock on a door and say, can we hunt? We see some geese in your field or some mallards on your pond. You know, we never hunted dry in, in those days. So uh, I don't know why, it's mainly because I don't think we had the ability to hide like we've got now. And, uh, you know, it evolved from that into people. They had an auger on the back of a pickup, and they would go out there and dig a hole for you to jump in and throw some some weeds around you and stuff to hide. And that got better, and that evolved into layout blinds and now panel blinds, which are great for old men like me. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pressure more than anything everywhere. You know, there are not that many outfitters in Missouri. There are a few up in northwest Missouri around that Swan Lake area 
but uh, and there's a couple now down in, in the Boot Hill area, southeast Missouri, but in the central part of the state, no, like there's not. But one of the our, our public hunting areas now are almost like a joke. Another thing, when I grew up, there were no state refuges. We had a few federal refuges, but no state. Well, the Missouri Department of Conservation got a ton of money from the percentage of sales tax that they get off a of soda pop. And uh, so they started buying up ground and building these refuges. And the hunting there is from half an hour before to one o'clock. And you talk about ducks with Rolexes. I mean, while you're picking up decoys at 105, they're landing on your head, you know. Yep. Uh, but a lot of that's because there's 18 guys in a little bitty 50-acre patch calling at them and spooking them off and moving. Uh, we had a piece of property up on top of one of these public hunting areas. And we had a bluff, and we would sit up there. My wife and I would sit up there and look down and watch all the robos moving. And the hunters you could see with your naked eye, not with your binoculars, weren't shooting anything. The ones that were hidden so well that you couldn't pick them out, you had to see their decoys. Was, you know, they were the guys getting all the ducks. But uh, the pressure is so great on those birds that it, they'll get stale in those areas and until we get new birds. And that's another thing. I don't believe in, in uh, uh, global warming. I believe definitely in climate change. And I talked to, earlier in the week to an old friend of mine, Peter Trexler, he used to be a Delta waterfowl. And Peter was saying he keeps copious records for 50 years of hunting that the, that the cold weather hitting in the northern fronts are coming later. It's a, almost a month later. It's colder later up into May than it used to be. And because and I do remember when in November we used to camp out sometimes and our eggs would freeze up in the cooler. It'd be so cold. Now in November we're still catching bass on top water. You know, it's it's 70 degrees and the cold weather doesn't get here till December or January. But Well, you know, we sat there this past, you're exactly right in the climate change. I haven't seen, I've never seen it where it's been so drastic so quick. We were sitting here uh, Christmas time and we had to bring our horses. We got a couple of places we keep the horses and we brought them down to the house here because it got minus 26 with the wind chill factor and it was so cold. I mean, bitter cold. The week later, uh, her and I were driving. I looked at the temperature on the car and it was 66 almost a 90 yeah. degrees you know change and everything had left and gone and all of a sudden three days here you know it took three days in this warm weather but all of a sudden all these geese popped up and i knew they were new birds because they're just floating around looking and then you know it get cold a couple of days boom they're gone again now it's warmed up again so it, it, you're right it's it's been really tough well it has and, and it's it's fun it's fun to watch and See, even with our season, our North Zone season ended on the uh, 27th of December. And, it, you know, it got so cold and everything was frozen up. And then it warmed up and we get a south migration. And the, the, the mallards, you know, they don't want to go any further uh, than they have to. I mean, they, they'll go just as far as the ice cap, so to speak. But when we get these reverse migrations and they start coming back, boy, to hunting in southeast Missouri, was fabulous for the last week or so but now uh it, you know it wasn't freezing at night even so the water wasn't freezing anywhere now it's getting down in the 28s 26s 27s at night and the birds will go they'll leave again because the, for the next what we've got here for the next 10 days is all it's not going to be out of the 30s during the day so those birds they'll they'll go south back south again i got a friend in louisiana always tells me he he would rather hunt a south wind and a, and a reverse migration than any other time of the year where here we dream about a northwest wind. Yeah. So it, is there, you tell me, is there anything more fascinating than waterfowl? I mean, even, even our monster white-tailed deer that we all chase, they're, they're, they're pretty understandable, you know, but boy, not waterfowl. <laughs> it's a, the, the biggest, greatest mystery of the, of the hunting industry. You're absolutely right. I've been, there's no doubt. I mean, we, we had a phenomenon this year. We were covered up with green-winged teal. And I'm talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of green-winged teal that were here for a couple of weeks. You could you could see these flocks of teal, 50, 60, 70 in a, in a, in a group would come in and buzz you, and it would be hilarious. I'd be hunting with some guys that didn't shoot too well, and we'd have, you know, 50 teal 
30, 40 feet from us in front of the blind and bang, 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 and they'd end up with two. (laughs) 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 Have been there, done that. You know, but uh, you know, and and last year it was it was pintails we had we had so yeah, many we pintails too. and we we're allowed to shoot one. Yep. So I had to be careful. I I take a lot of people and and I got to be careful saying no 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 that's a pintail that's a pintail, and you know you get a group of birds coming and a hen pintail it's isn't tough. the easiest thing in the world for an old man to pick out anymore. <laughs> yeah, I get that. You know, and you're talking about evolving, but uh, I remember years ago when we first started and we had to carry light and flambeau decoys. And I'll never forget when Art Ladioff came out with the Bigfoot decoys. I was I was outfitting at that time in, in Michigan. And then we had Tim Grounds, Foils, and Zinc, and all those guys came up and I guided with. And when we first got the Bigfoot decoys, man, we thought we died and went to heaven. I mean, the full bodies and geese would eat them up and then... We're looking at today, and you're looking at everybody, you know, trying to get the world-class carvers and trying to get all these different body <laughs> styles and, and everything. And, and is I don't know, probably four nights ago, I was up watering the horses, and uh, it was pretty windy. I will say that it was pretty windy, but I took a night off of uh, hunting. And the birds, I watched, and, and of course, I can see the field we're hunting and where, where the horses are crossed, but I'm watching these birds, and I got a spread set out there. And a bunch of full bodies and silhouettes, and I got dive bombs, big owls, and final approach, and uh, zero gravity blinds, and everything. And it, I mean, it looks good, but I'm watching this group of geese, and I said, "Oh man, I wish I was out there." And I'm watching them; they're bowed, and they're they're you know 100 yards out, and they're bowed, and they're they're only probably 40 yards high, and they're just coming in, and they're doing that bow. And when they got over the silhouettes and the decoys, they pumped and flared and moved around, circled it, but stayed way out in their circle, then went probably, I'd say, 100 yards and lit in the field. And that was no one calling, you know, and it's like, wow, these birds are evolving. They're just, they're picking things out. This just isn't, you know, I think it gets to a certain point that, that, especially at the end of the season, that these they have learned to adapt so much faster and so much better. If they wouldn't, they'd be extinct with all the, you know, the hunting pressure that's going on. And, 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 but, man, they just, it seems like they, they know these are decoys. And I think, you know, earlier in the year, they get fooled. And those who survived, they start adapting. And they know that site and when they get in there. But, you know, you can kind of, if they were just pulling off and not sure they wanted to be there. But when they're, you could tell that they were bowed and wanting to come in. And you know what a flare you know, they bumped and in, in out of there. They didn't like something. You know what? You're you're so right. And I I've also got another theory. You know, I'm not an ornithologist, even though I could play one on TV. Um, <laughs> I've studied these birds so long, and I've also hung hung out with ornithologists, and I've learned more from them than I have any biologist, any DU biologist or so-called expert in the duck world, you talk to a guy that studied birds overall in his career and has a degree, he can tell you about behavior, which is just, uh, it's unbelievable. And, and we've sat and talked about how close does a bird need to get to where his vision allows him to make out a booger, as they call it in Arkansas. And, uh, you know, we've figured out somewhere between 60 and 70 yards. I mean, you watch the, I don't care if it's Canada geese, if it's mallards or what it is, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming, and then they either flare, you just watch your tails, and those tails get real wide as they flare out, or they slip off, you know, and, and geese are bad about sliding and landing, like you said, 50 yards out of the decoys. Uh, so, and, and, and it is, you know, there's been such an evolution in decoys. You're, you're, you're right. I mean, when we saw the first Bigfoot that we ever saw, we had to have them, and we were shocked. At the time, they were probably $20 a piece, and we thought that was just so outrageous for a decoy. <laughs> uh, and, you know, local boy, I don't want to give Cody too many props here, but uh, the dive bomb guy, I mean, what he's been able to do, it's a cult. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's a oh, cult. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and everybody, if you don't have them, you just, you, you know, you're shamed. You don't want to go to a coffee shop in the morning if you don't have dive bombs. So, <laughs> um, we had a little duck fest here and I, I went this year and, and I, it really troubled me because I think I was the youngest person there, the oldest person there. I'm sorry. Uh, and all these young dudes were hanging out in his booth and he's now making gun cases and shooting bags and all kinds of stuff with that dive bomb logo on it. So God only knows where he'll end up going. 
but uh, it, you, you know, it's changed so much, George. I, I hunted the geese at Swan Lake when I was a young man in Missouri, which they came three, four hundred thousand geese. Then I, I belonged to a club in southern Illinois near uh, the big refuge down there. And I'm telling you, you know, you you could look in the sky at any time and see geese flying back and forth, trading here and there, going out to feed, coming out of the refuge. And uh, it's over. They don't go there anymore. They don't go any further in Chicago. They they sit up there. They they I, I don't know why. I guess they've all become Democrats, but they stay in Chicago. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> their eyes I mean, are closed. Is Ronald Reagan said, you know, the Democrat puppies, he, you know, their eyes were closed. And when the week later, the kid was selling them as Republican uh, puppies. And the guy says, wait, hey, last week you had them at the Democrat Party. You were selling these puppies as Democrats. He says, yeah, this week their eyes are open. <laughs> They're Republicans. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, not to jump subjects here, but I guess you've, you've watched what's going on in Illinois. I mean, they're going to take guns away from you if they can they're going to get you know they start out small as we know and you know they're into they're, they're, but they're talking about semi-automatics which even, even include shotguns so i think there's 60 some guns on the list initially that they want to ban and of course it'll go all the way to supreme court and be fought thank god we've got somebody that represents us you know um but it's i and i've done a lot of hunting in illinois we, we go to florida now every year or did until the hurricane took our house but uh, we, we, I won't drive to Illinois with guns in my car. I avoid it. I'll go all the way around. I go down 55 South and cut over through Seriously? Tennessee and Alabama because I won't drive through Illinois. Wow. That's sad. It's that bad. That's where I used to deer hunt. And Illinois has got as good of deer hunting as, as Iowa does. And, uh, you know, limited, restricted. They just now are allowing shoulderless uh, rifle cartridges. But for years, it was shotguns only. And then when muzzleloaders really got so good, they allowed muzzleloaders. And for a few years, you couldn't use the scope. They finally got that changed. Uh, so all my big deer have come from Illinois because it's hard to get a, unless you own a thousand acres here in Missouri, to get a deer past three and a half years old. Right. Um, and, and and the waterfowl hunting in Illinois too. Those those pits in southern Illinois where they they dug the uh, the coal, the strip pits, they never freeze because they're seventy five or hundred feet deep. Some of them, and boy, they fill up. I've seen them so black with geese. You know, and nobody had seen it wouldn't know what you were talking about when you look at a body of water. It just looks black. That means that there's no water showing. It's all goose heads sticking up. You know, you're talking and, about all that strip mining area. Yes, yep, yes, boy, yep. that can be that can be some of the finest hunting around, but it's been chopped up. It's it's not it's not what it used to be either, but it's still a good place if if a guy can get a place down there to hunt. Uh, it's still a good place to go. We did some goose hunting. I remember you're exactly right. We did. There was a, a powerhouse. What do you recall? It, uh, down in uh, Terre Haute, Indiana, and some guys were pro staffers. We hunted down there one year, and they had a lot of strip mining areas, and they would just fill up black with geese. And then that powerhouse yeah. would hold the geese, you know, and um, that was good hunting. I, I the, the last hunting, I, I say on the radio all the time with Dan, that people, that, that hunting is better where the people ain't. And, exactly. You know, we, we, we go, and I can't do it anymore. We used to go out in Kansas and we'd go on force marches. There would be a, a pond that my local contact out there that did some guiding until they made them quit on uh he can't guide on any public ground anymore but he'd know where these ponds were just way back in nothingness you know and they were just surrounded with normal weeds that grow up in that prairie pasture out there but that was enough for ducks to feed on and knock some seeds off of it alike but you know you, you get an area where it hasn't been hunted in a long time and you're going to have success you know you got the birds are going to come back in there whether you've got decoys no decoys calling no calling uh, you need to be hidden, obviously, but uh, that's the best hunting around with these populated areas like here so close to St. Louis. Boy, I'll tell you, the, it doesn't take them long to get conditioned, as my ornithologist friend says. We condition animals, just like our big deer. If you spook them two or three times, they're not going to come back to that spot. They're oh, going to no. avoid it. Yeah. They're, they're senior senior citizens. They've seen it all. And ducks are the same way. You know, a, a prime example, I saw an ad from a snow goose um, outfitter, which we do have a lot in Missouri because that, especially the, the central to western part of Missouri, uh, the big, a huge flock of, of birds migrate back north up through that region. 
And so there's quite a few outfitters out there. And the good outfitters, I've learned, uh, they'll start out in Arkansas or somewhere, even northern Louisiana, and go all the way up, you know, into the Dakotas. And you book a hunt with them, and they will call you and tell you where to go. What's what state to show up in, you know, when they see where the birds are going and where they're congregating, they'll call you and say, okay, we want you at uh, Pine Bluff, Arkansas to, 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 to goose hunt. And then the next week it may be, well, we want you at St. Joe, Missouri. And that's really kind of a cool way to do it. But I, I think one of the posts that I saw from them was the fact that come hunt with us this year because it was a great hatch of snow geese, which means there's a lot of young birds, which means we'll have success. Mm. Well, you know, because you, you know, right. the, the older birds, you, you don't, you don't see the bands that are six and seven years old. Those guys know how to avoid us. <laughs> That's the truth. You know, uh, you, you brought up a good point. For that. I, I said that years ago um, when I first was with Avery and they had, a, you know, their, their big form and everything. But they wanted us at that time to, uh, they had the uh, migration report. Then they had a few of us that then say, hey, man, just can you go on every few days or every once a week at least and tell how the birds are, how your hunting is in your area? And I'd look and I said, are you nuts? Why would I tell people I'm killing birds? Why would I tell people? And, and But one of the things when guys would ask me, you know, if you're looking to go to a different state or somewhere to hunt, what are you looking for? Well, I said, well definitely I'm you know, looking for roots and areas that's holding birds. And it's one thing about uh, ducks and geese. They're the easiest ones to scout because it's different than deer. you got to get out and do legwork, and you got to get it in the woods. And then again, you got to know what you're looking for. You can drive around with a cup of coffee and, and a can of dip. And, and be watching scouting birds just by looking in the, you know, following them in the air. But I would go to an area, I definitely got an area that has birds, but I'm looking for an area of, of you know, wanting to know the hunting population. I want to know how much hunting pressure this area is going to have, and that's going to dictate. I'd rather hunt an area with less birds and less hunting pressure than an area with a lot of birds and a lot of hunting pressure. It's just, it's different. That was my mindset. There's no doubt about it. And, and, you know, the hot spots, well, that's what, what kind of ruined Stuttgart. When they, uh, you know, like I said, there were so many ducks down there in the 19, late 1960s when I was down there that shooting a, shooting a limit of ducks was ridiculously easy compared to what it is to where it is today. You know, you either hunted a roost, and, and a lot of people don't understand there's, there's several different things that waterfowl need besides food and water, and they probably need less water than anything, but they need a, a they need a, uh, a feeding place they need a roosting place and they also need a loafing place and all three of those can be different you can combine two of them but usually you don't have three of the three you know it's two out of the three that you'll have yeah you know kind of like like our farm we've got a wonderful rest lake and we'll have three five thousand ducks of course it's on the other side of a railroad track We'll have three or three to five thousand ducks sitting there, and we're in a blind right on the other side of the railroad track, not oh six seven hundred yards from them, maybe. And you can't kill a duck; they will not fly. And you can hear them over there, and you'll see them get up in the air and switch around a little bit, and then go right back down. But they, they don't cross that that railroad track, and it, it's a joke among people that don't know what's going on. But those birds are provided. Uh, two out of the three, they've got a loafing place during the day, and then they get a roosting place, so they're not going to leave. And uh, you, you find that just about anywhere anymore. You know, it used to be ducks traded around a lot more. In Arkansas years ago, it ducks would you'd see ducks up flying, you're driving down the highway. There's just ducks going this way and ducks going that way. Nowadays, you can drive through Stuttgart and you don't see a duck. Uh, maybe if you're there right at dawn's very first little crack, you might see a duck. But the rest of the day, you don't. They're hanging out closer to their refuges and closer to their feeding places. So this this evolution thing has, has changed their habitats, their habits, as well as the way that we have to hunt them. Um, you know, we, we used to talk about that in Southern Illinois. Hunting refuge geese, where you get 300,000 geese on the other side of a wire fence, um, it's a lot different than hunting geese in Nebraska, where they're halfway in their migration and they've stopped to feed and found a comfortable place. Totally different methodology in hunting them. Absolutely. Through all your years, and, and we're talking about you know the evolution of, of how hunting's changed, but what would you say is, is you know sitting back and in, in your interpretation, what do you see as some of the pluses and improvements, or even whether it's the 
products or knowledge or whatever, what have you seen as, as, that has evolved to the, to the plus? Well, my goodness, you know, we were wet and cold all the time when we were young. And thank God that, that, that we could take it when we were young. I can't take it now. But thanks to, uh, you know, miracles that most people wouldn't believe is a miracle, uh, Gore-Tex. You know? I mean, we're dry now. We, we are dry. My wife kids me all the time when I try and get her to go fishing. She said, I can be cold um, and I can be wet, but I can't be wet and cold. Take me home, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and you can now stay dry because of the, the garments that we have that are just absolutely out of the world. I mean, look at look at the waders we've got. Did you ever, ever in your wildest imagination think that you would see a pair of waders with a zipper in it? No, no, not at all. No. Lord, yeah, I, I, I don't think own, I'd see. I don't own a pair because I'm too cheap, but I would really like to have a pair of the $1,000 waders. That's what I was getting ready to say. I never thought I'd see a day I'd pay $1,000 for a pair of waders either. But I would. I do say that when people ask me, I said, you know what, to me, it's, it's the clothing. Because like you said, we all, when we were young, we were tough. And I sat a lot of frozen hands and a lot of frozen times. But when Gore-Tex, you know, and you know, I was a sick athlete when they first came out and but the, the, the clothing has allowed me and it's allowed my wife and be able to take someone and withstand the elements, you know. So it's definitely been the, the I would say the clothing gear has definitely been in boots, you know, the cross boots. Everybody, it's just it ha, it's been evolved. You know, to me, a shotgun, I can still kill geese with my old 870 and uh, yep. or ducks. You know, so I really don't think the involving of the gun. I mean, there's good guns, but I think that the uh, the clothing has been the biggest well, it's been such a plus. And the ability to hide, you know, like I said, we, we had a limited amount of birds that would use uh, the fields here near St. Louis. And I knew a farmer at one time, actually on the Missouri River, before it runs into the Mississippi, that allowed me to hunt because we saw birds going in his field. Well, we didn't have, like you said, the, the, the silhouette decoys or the full-body decoys that threw such a – he used to love the shadow that they threw. You know, I thought that was part of the reason the birds came in. But we didn't have decent decoys. We we generally used floater decoys. We would sit them in the mud out there, you know. Yeah. And uh, and now the ability to hide with, with uh, layout blinds, layout boats, what they do with layout boats on a flooded car field now is ridiculous because you can get hit. And, and that's a big thing today, George. You know, in the old days, we had blinds that stuck out like you just couldn't believe. They, they looked like a cruise ship on a puddle and didn't bother the ducks. As long as you were in there and didn't move and didn't pie face them and show that white face up there, they would come right in. If you have a big blob blind right now in the finest duck hunting area in the world or goose hunting, it's hard to get the birds over that blind in range where you can knock them down, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, they learn um, to avoid the, the tree lines and, and fingers and stuff yep. like that. Yep. Yep. And, and I'm telling you, uh, I got to give credit to you and, and a few guys like you that I really respect. The calls that we had in the old days, on a cold day, they all froze up. I mean, uh, you, you had to have several old wooden calls or something hanging around your neck or ensign. And, you know, you blew into that thing and, man, it was it was froze up right away because, I mean, so many of us, I'm a spitter when I call. And uh, I'll be darned if, uh, you know, there's several different styles of calling we could go in for a lot of people use here. The old, the old men here that, that taught me were all grunt callers on a, on a PS Alt. And, and when they would get ready to call, they'd be doing a, <laughs> you know, it yeah. was almost yeah. hilarious the way they did it. But but look at calls. I mean, you guys, are you're turning a call out now. It's it's literally bulletproof. I mean, it's 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 a it's an amazing musical instrument to me. That once a guy masters it, if he practices on it at all, if he gives it some time, the different amount of tones you can you can come up with that call is just it's it's just fascinating. So uh, you know, and there are times when when birds can really be called that. I mean, that makes all the difference in the world. I've seen it with geese for sure. And I hunted with a guy for a long time and did a video for him and everything. It was the first guy, the first goose call that I ever really thought was cool outside of the old ones from Southern Illinois was a flute call. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Mike Weller did a lot to promote that flute call and move it along and, and showed me how to use it. And I was never able to cluck before on any of those other calls. So... The, the evolution of calls has just been absolutely magnificent. And a lot of that has to do with 
you know, being able to get a CD or something and pop it in your car and listen to a guy that's proficient on a call and learn from it. Yep. So I don't know how we ever killed a duck in the old days by, by the <laughs> method of calling, you know, compared to what we got now. It's definitely true. I did a podcast a few weeks or maybe a month ago with Todd Copley. Now, Todd's won the world. He's won the, the senior world and he won the, the champion of champions. And uh, he has fell in love. And, and I have. I've changed a lot with my calling uh, with ducks, especially as I'm, you know, kind of you see that the, the, and it happens in life. And you'll see things kind of go back to what we used years ago. But the cut down duck call. And uh, we've done real well with our nose dive and the impact, and we spent a lot of time to get something that's easy to operate but still has all that fullness of duck in it. But for me, I'm not a, a guy who likes calling a ton at ducks. You know, I like to call it, a, you know, it's, it's all about timing. And I was always, even with my right. J-frame calls, it was more of a barker that wah, 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 you know, and I was always trying to get a, a response. And, um, so when we worked on the cut down, we worked a couple of years on our cut down. And what I thought is, you know, and it's a total different beast. It's different than operating. But since I've been able to run, you know, run the cut down, I, it, to me, I, I use tell guys, it's kind of like, you know, a bunch of teenage kids in the blind. And then the old man walks in and, and barks. That's the difference in the cut down. And even the guys that I hunted with this year, they had different, but, but they were using James Van single reads, whatever. And a lot of when I was running that cut down, those ducks were just responding different. It's a different sound and what, you know, what they've heard and what they're hearing. And if you hit it, you know, I was getting gut ducks to turn and getting that response. And it's just guys have gotten the cut down and they, they call me and say, man, I, it's really tough to, it's totally, you just got to work with it. It's a different beast. But I would say the cut down has it made a difference in my duck hunting. Is, is it, does the cut down, is it harder to blow? Do you blow a bit differently? It, it's, yes, it, it's a different, I wouldn't say that it's uh, much, you know, more, it's harder to run. I'd say that it's just a different air presentation, a quicker, it's more where you're, where the uh, a, a J frame, you're just kind of running it up. You, your air's oscillating that read. And when you're using, the cut down, I got quicker burst up front. So I'm getting that. So it gives you that good barking hand. And when you do that from the sides and at the rears or when they're, they're out there, you know, going away and you turn, you hit that little barking hand, man, I'm telling you, they just tune. And uh, so my buddies this year have all come to me and wanting to run the cut down and they went to one buddy went to Arkansas. He, you know, he loves the new spec call I did, but he says, "Man, I'm having a hard time with that cut down." I said, "You just, it's a different beast. It's a different air presentation. But if you can run a J-frame duck call, you can run, you know, the nose dive and the nose dive. That's what's made been so popular because I've made that to be really raspy. So you know, it I can make it raspier with the voice inflection, but we made it so it, it can." It'll take the air up front. You can bark with it if you want. It, it, it's easy to, to run the feed, yet you can almost, with our double read, almost do a hail call with it, which I hardly ever do. But, it, um, yeah, the duck is, is something that, uh, you know, goose, we were happy. We took pride. We designed our own guts, and, and we designed the calls, and each calls for a purpose. But I really took the, the, the mission of working on duck calls just because that, that can really make a big difference of uh, finishing, you know, decoys, I say decoys work when, you know, 80 to 50 yards, your decoys are working, but that's that last 50 yards that separates the men from the boys. Boy, do I agree with that, you know, uh, and I have, I don't want to go back to decoys too deep, but I've learned that I put the decoys way up wind behind the blind and stuff like that, because I don't want them flying over decoys first before they Ab get to me. You know, absolutely. The old thing of, of having the, the decoys right out in front of the blind like we've done for 100 years, and I'm avoiding that with all possible. And, you know, the problem is absolutely. hunting a, a private piece of property, and, uh, you know, they leave the decoys out, and I don't like that. I'd rather pick them up every day. But, but you're so right. You know, if, if I close my eyes and I dream about duck hunting, I dream about a single mallard drake in the sunshine, just flying by and he's just beating his wingtips that's all he's doing is he's just moving his wingtips and he's just going straight by 
And when he gets by you, you give him that old boca, 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 and he just makes that spin and turns around and goes back downwind again and then just cups up and comes right in. And, uh, you know, I I learned years ago from my ornithologist, buddy, I watch a duck and I, I learn from every duck that I hunt, I learn something and I say, why didn't that duck come in? Why did that duck do to what he did? Why did he do here? And, you know, lately with this evolution again that I talk about a lot, I want the ducks up over the blind. I want them up in the air over me for, for a lot of reasons. I can see them. They're shining their breast right at you where you can get some shot into. You're not shooting into their side when their wing's down. And the average guy, it can kill a duck much, much better if it's up over him. Let's say it's let's say it's 30 yards in the air straight over the blind. That duck is so much easier to kill than a duck oh, that is 30 yards straight out from the blind. Absolutely. And so my goal is, is to set the decoys and call the ducks where I can get them right up over the top of the blind. And then even when you come up on them, especially on a windy day, a bad windy day, when you come up on them, if they fall back, you still got a chance. If you get a duck out in front of you cruising along and he falls back, if you do anything, you cripple him. You don't kill him dead. So I, I think about all those things and I think about what, what's wrong here. Is the decoys wrong? What's wrong? And I'm limited by hunting a family farm. The blinds are the blinds. I can't do anything about it. They, they want them that way. I've made some progress. I now have the dogs in the blind with me so I can hide people's dogs and, and even my dog too. You know, they had big boxes out alongside the blind that you couldn't even reach the dog. You had to crawl up on the step to get a, a bird. The negative to that, when the dog jumps back in the blind, he gets the dog handler wet. usually. <laughs> so you got to turn your back and let him shake because he's going to shake. And, uh, but yet I'm hiding the dog as well as the hunters. Uh, I got to keep their faces down till the last minute. And if they jump up on a bird that's 30 yards out, by the time the safeties come off, the guns come up and everything, they're shooting at 45-yard birds, and, and I, I, just, I just don't like that. Absolutely. And then usually by the time that they're turning, I call it it's real windy. It's a one-shot wind. You know, yep. it, they get one shot. But, you know, it's, it's very good what you said about that. I agree about the dog, and I've had that issue over years and years. Um, you know, it's tough to have it. I'm not a big advocate of having a dog inside a, a big A-frame with me. Or when we hunted pits, I've seen you know, if it was a guy in, in their same group had a pit or dog in there. I said, you know, I'd always want to make that dog where he's steady. Is he steady? And first time I hit that call and watch, I'll watch that dog. And if he's not steady, you know, I'll, I'll tell him it's just too much in safety. And I've had dogs move and knock guns over. And I had a dog knock a gun barrel into my crotch. You know, it's just, but this year duck hunting we had a, a one of the duck hunts and the guys love to have their dogs they want to bring their dog and that's cool but they make dog blinds they make dogs and if your dog don't stake him in or whatever but they we had we put a big we put an a-frame up and thatched it in but we were shooting the ducks you know the ducks are coming in at 20 yards and they and we're hunting this pond and they've been coming in there and i'm talking thousands of ducks this was unbelievable i took you know, you raised a good point there, Dan, and talked about dogs and them being concealed and stuff. We did a couple. We had two remarkable duck hunts that was memorable this year. Where you know, even though we had the drought and, and the duck hunting was, it was wasn't that as it wasn't as good and, and short. But we had a couple good hunts where they were piling and the only water we had around here. And we went to the hunt and you know we went to the trouble of putting up an A-frame blind and fast it and, and with four guys in there and. Then, but the guy had to have his dog, and everybody wants to hunt with their dog, and and they so what he does, his dog is sitting outside, sitting on the bank, watching the ducks come in, and so you're working, and I could tell when ducks were pulling out at 30 and 35 yards, and they, what do you think's wrong? <laughs> and so finally, I didn't want to hurt, but I, dude, I said the point is, see that that dog's moving back and forth. You don't think those ducks? This is late season. I mean, their their eyes are all down here, and they've been. You know, they don't know the difference. That's coyote, dog, or whatever, but they're not coming in. I mean, uh, right. you know, and it's almost like you hurt their feelings. <laughs> they <laughs> want, you, do, you know, and, but, but people don't understand those, you know, those ducks leave Canada or wherever they're born in the boreal region or, you know, North Dakota somewhere. They leave and they're pretty much teenagers. And by the time they get to us, they got PhDs. Yeah, so, absolutely. Good know, point. It doesn't take it doesn't take much to spook them, but I, I thought 
uh, you know, I've, I've got a good friend. He was my son's college roommate at the University of Missouri. The, the, I call him the mouth of the South. He's a dog <laughs> trainer, boat boat builder, does everything. J. Paul Jackson. And uh, yeah, I know J. Paul. J. Paul. Yeah, you know J. Paul. Yeah. He's, a, he's a dandy. And uh, uh, he had a rule. He did some outfitting for a while, or actually guiding more than outfitting, but guiding, which is another subject. You get. I'll talk to you about in a minute. But um, he insisted that your dog has at least a finished title from AKC or whatever they call it, UKC or whatever they call it, AKC, a senior title, before you could bring your dog hunting with him. Just for that reason, he didn't want a dog messing up a hunt. And, you know, because he was mixing parties together, and there's nothing worse than if you're paying good money for a guide and some other yahoo's there with his dog and he spooks all the birds out, you know, you're pretty aggravated. So, you know, and even though I'll brag on my dog and say he's steady, um, or one of them, my female, is not steady. She gun goes off and she's gone, so she's got to be tethered. But um, uh, you, you just you just can't let the dog ruin the hunt, especially if you're with other people. Exactly, and it's just and it's not safe. That's what I tell guys. Anybody that uh, puts their dog, I've seen guys back in the old days would put their dog in the layout blind with them and i said man can you imagine four guys laying side by side and you come up and you got your gun pointed and all of a sudden the dog jumps and pushes your arm over to the left and blow your buddy's head off it just you know it don't make sense it's just if you want to do it by yourself but like you said it's uh you know phil robertson had a comment one time he says you can talk about my woman you can talk about my call but you talk about my dog and you got a fight <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's right my daddy used to say it too love me love my dog but you know, uh, I've tried it. I've tried in a layout blind. I tried cutting the back out and building a little thing where I could put the dog behind me because one of my biggest aggravations, that gun barrel's right over the top of that dog's head when you shoot when they're laying between your legs. Blowing his ears and, out. You know, I've never had a Labrador. They get to be 10 years old and they're all deaf. Yeah. You know, because of having those gun barrels right over their head. That's a good but point. I, you know, even, even my super trained dog that's got a master hunter title, I'll tether him. Just because the first time we went to South Dakota and hunted uh, early season nuisance geese, you were allowed 10 apiece, and there were six of us in a couple of A-frames tied together. And I was on the end, obviously, because I had the dog. Um, the outfitter had his dog, too, or the guide had his dog that was on the other end of the blind. Uh, but he bought a, brought a box for his dog, which I didn't have. So my dog is sitting, and I couldn't keep him from peeking around the corner. There's yeah. no way. <laughs> he wants to see those birds. Uh, you know, in, in the way that we construct our blinds here that I was telling you about, the dog can see the ducks, but the ducks can't see the dog because he's in the blind with you. He's on a platform that's shoulder high. Right. Uh, but at any rate, when we were in, in South Dakota, I just, for a while, I just put my gun up and all I care about is handling my dogs. I, that dog, I don't care who shoots. You know, I just want to see that dog get that bird. And especially if there's one crippled and he's running in a mud field 50, 60 yards away, I don't want to run out there and chase that thing, you know. With your, with your feet, you know, three times the size because your boots are picking up all that mud. I don't want to do that. So uh, the, the dog to me has become, I've gone to shooting a side-by-side, -side, two and three-quarter inch, which I don't shoot near as well as I do a Benelli. I can take a super Black Eagle three with three-and-a-half-inch ammo and throw some stuff up there in the air. But I, I want them close. I don't want to shoot often. I want the other people to shoot. But I want that dog to pick up every bird that goes down. Absolutely. And that's, you know, if you ever upland hunt, and, and uh, which that's what I've done, at, you know, I grew up with pheasants and, and then waterfowl hunting. I've always had a great dog and I got that attachment to your dog. But I did, I do a lot of solo hunts or with my wife and it's just the, the dog is, is you enjoy hunting with the dog you, when you're pheasant hunting. I know his personality. I know when he's working on one. I know when he's getting close. You know, and and then just they'll retrieve and they'll do things that you will never do, and and they'll, you'll absolutely. retrieve birds that you'll never would have done without them. I mean, whether it's oh, crazy. absolutely, yeah. uh, you know, if somebody brags on my dog, they'll say, "Well, you got a good dog." You know, I'll tell them, "Yeah, he's got the brains, and I got the driver's license." <laughs> that's a good one. pretty well pretty good team team effort there you know <laughs> that's what they say about we're, my wife we're and talking I. about upland hunting where we're blessed uh and we, we we found a way to do it in florida at silver lake farms one of the coolest places i've ever found in florida you can kill a ocl turkey you can kill a gator you can quail hunt 
it's just it's the most unbelievable place I've ever seen. And it, it you know, I'm I'm so used to little patches that we hunt, and they've got like thirty five thousand acres of hunting ground. Wow. That's, it's just overwhelming. But um, uh, these these tower shoots, these pheasant shoots, where where they throw the birds. Yeah. Um, we we got a local place here. We do it, so we get to go and and uh, work our labs. Well, they'll pick up fifty, sixty birds in one day. And the, the training ability, you know, if a bird falls right in front of them 10 feet, you'd make them ignore that bird. And the bird that goes 30 yards off to your side, you know, the hunters are, the hunters are in a big circle and every other hunter or every two hunters has got a dog handler. And, uh, you know, they're shooting these birds that are coming up over their head. So you, you make your dog ignore that bird and you send him after another one and everything. And boy, you know, that it, it proved the theory to me that I remember years and years ago talking to a professional trainer, and he asked me if I knew the difference between a good dog and a great dog. Do you know what the difference is, George? No. 500 birds. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense, <laughs> though. I mean, yeah. that's what it does. But when they get to be senior like that, that bird doesn't fool them. You know, he, he, they, they know. It's amazing how they know. Hmm. I agree with that. I, I had a Chesapeake that uh, he was he was amazing. He slept with me. He worked with me everywhere we went. I mean, we were bonded, and he was 105 pounds of just pure muscle. But he, wow. I'm telling you what, he was, I trained him, and he was just so remarkable. And I'll never forget, I lived, when I lived in Michigan, I lived, I had two big prestigious hunt clubs in the back of ours where we lived. And so I lived with ducks and geese. We'd see them all the time. And We'd help plant them there where the DNR would they capture them and stuff. And anyway, he was just, he grew up with that. But I remember hunting in the club one day and with one of the club members, old guy, and we had, we shot some geese and then we called in, then we shot some ducks and, and buck boy, he went out there and, and the old man had uh, crippled one. And when it hit the water and it was swimming off and my dog had made him stay. And when we got done, we went out there and uh so we, you know we had he he got the birds that we had there and he picked them up and so i was getting the decoys and not even paying attention and so it got pretty much dark if we got everything set up and put up and walking out and i still didn't look for my dog and and there was a we were on the north bay and then there's a south bay and one of the club members who loved my dog we met him on the dike and he was sitting there and he said well you guys did really good he says i didn't get crap and he says, where's old, where's Bucky boy? And I looked around and shit. So I yelled for him and here he comes and he comes with this live goose in his mouth. He never forgot that <laughs> goose that walked up that dike. And when we went over, you know, when we were done picking up, he went straight over there and sniffed him and retrieved that bird. And that's the kind of stuff that you can't, they have to be out there. You know, he hunted constantly. And that they just got that that stuff that they gotta learn. You can't train. You know what? You're so right, and and it that's the amazing part of of hunting with a dog when they do something that's that's spectacular. You know, and I, I could tell you that I can remember certain retrieves better than I can remember certain ducks that we shot. Amen. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, I could tell you stories going on and on and on about some of the feats that these Labradors have pulled off. And it's, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Um, I, I mean, I, I could go on for hours about things that, that I remember. You know, one of my favorites, we were wading in, in water and flooded timber that was just almost over our waders. And everybody's pulling their waders up and we're kidding the short guy. You're not going to make it, you know, and we're, well, we were crossing a ditch, but it was all flooded timber, you know. And if we wouldn't have known the ditch was there, it would have been different. But we knew it was there. And we knew we could barely get across it, but we're just about to get across it. And here comes my dog swimming to me with a duck in its mouth. Yeah. And I thought, well, where in the world? We hadn't even hunted yet. Where did that duck come from? You know, so he gets closer and he gets closer. And I look down at it and it is like covered with the nastiest slime and everything you've ever seen in your life. Just nasty. That duck had been in that water for days. Oh. And he's right up to my face because I'm in water up, up to my, over my chest, you know. And I'm like, get out of here, get out of here, leave it, leave it, leave it. And so he finally figured he doesn't understand why I'm telling him to, to drop the duck, you know. So I leave it, and he finally leaves it, and it rolls over, and it's banded. Ah. <laughs> I, I told everybody, I said, my dog knows if that dog, if that duck would have been banded, he wouldn't have brought it to me. There you go. <laughs> 
<laughs> Total BS, you know, but yeah. it, those kind of things just etch in your memory. The banded duck. Dog in them. The banded dog. I'm sitting there looking, looking at him right now, and he's looking at me like he's listening to me, you know, that, that he's, he hears his story. So. <laughs> that is amazing. You <laughs> Crazy know, things happen, I'll tell you. Yeah, it Live, does. Living with labs, we, we you know, we, when my first wife, you did not bring a dog in the house. That was forbidden, you know. And this one, if you don't have a dog in the house, it's not a home. It's not so, part of the family. Yeah, we got to, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at this male of mine now, and he's looking at me, and I can tell he's like, okay, what's next? What are we going to do? Where are we going? He's one that follows me everywhere I go. It's the old joke. You can't go to the bathroom without your dog. <laughs> you know, they follow you right in there. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you spending your time, and, and your, your stories are amazing. Your experience, sharing with all our audience, your experience and your honesty, and I agree with 100% with everything you're saying, and, and it's just a, an honor to have somebody who's spent the years in the industry and who's had knowledge of, you know, has done some things, and to hear your opinions, it's definitely a wealth of knowledge, and I appreciate it, Dan, and, and uh, any of you listeners out there, Please subscribe, go to our website, or you can go to YouTube as Legendary Gear with George Lynch. Uh, I think Diane's got us on nine different platforms on the George Lynch Hunting Show. And uh, you also be, you can hear it on the Outdoor Call Radio with Dan Young. But I uh, surely appreciate it. If you like it, please subscribe. And always remember, friends, hunt safe, hunt smart. May the good Lord be your guide. Well, I'll be out there, rain is shining. A part of the great design. Bring it on, I can never get enough. Because that's what legends are made of.